0: Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to WCHAT. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Deanna Carvajal, a physician and researcher, about her work in research with understanding contraceptive decision-making among Latinas, specifically the relationship with patient-provider communication, trust, and relationships. The notes for this episode will be available on our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash WCH. Also, we want to keep recording, so please check out our Patreon page to find out more on how you can support us or on our website at www.womencenteredhealth.com.
1: So, Deanna, we always like to give our listeners a little background about the person we are speaking with. So, if you could please talk a little bit about yourself. So, let our listeners know about your background, your education and training and where you currently work and the type of research you do.
2: So thanks for having me and for having interest in my work. So I'm a family physician. As you mentioned, I trained in New York City, in Washington Heights. That was where I got my start working in predominantly Latino neighborhoods and neighborhoods for which access to care was not optimal. And so from there, I got my start in what I really wanted to do, which was work with what we would consider underserved or vulnerable populations. And I've always been really interested in contraception and women's health and this idea that, you know, the healthier the woman is, the healthier her family and her community is, and that reproductive health, particularly contraception, has a lot to do with that. So after residency in New York, I went on to do a research fellowship because I thought that through research um, and really getting information out there was also going to be able to help my patients. And then I did some public health work also in Baltimore and have been working with the Latina population uh, in Baltimore since about 2008. Uh, So that's my background. I started at Columbia, New York City, like I said, and then I was at Hopkins and University of Maryland in Baltimore and have been here for a while now.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about the research you're doing now? So the work that I'm doing
2: is really focusing on understanding the importance of communication and building trust in relationships between Latina patients and their providers and how the relationship building really impacts their reproductive health care, but specifically it impacts their decision-making and choices around contraception use and childbearing so I really focus on understanding how that relationship ultimately affects contraceptive use, decision-making, and their reproductive health.
1: Great. So you kind of hit on this a little bit already, but I'll ask anyway, in case you want to say more, we also always ask every guest, what informs your perspective? So why do you do what you do? What's most valuable to you? Or what's your philosophy of practice?
2: My personal perspective is is influenced heavily by who I am. So I am a Latina woman. I am of immigrant parents. And my work really focuses on helping this population to the best of my ability in their reproductive health. But the perspective is also one of empowerment and autonomy. So I think when it comes to reproductive health, particularly childbearing, it is something that's a very personal decision and that women should have the ability to decide on their own with the help of their provider. And as a family doctor who takes care of lots of women and lots of Latina women, for me, that's kind of what informs my perspective. So I see them in their day-to-day lives, um, and I take care of their kids, I take care of their husbands, I take care of their parents. And so I see the family perspective and the dynamic on a regular basis as a family physician and so those things really inform my perspective and my philosophy is one of autonomy when it comes to reproductive health and childbearing but also one that is equitable and just in terms of healthcare.
0: that's great okay so like we said we are going to discuss Dr. Carvajal's work and research regarding Latina women and communication so let's jump right in so the first question we have is can you tell us a little bit about the research studies that you have done and the implications your findings have on provider communication? Sure. So done a couple of studies, but the
2: most recent study we have really been trying to understand the perspective of Baltimore Latinas and I I will say that the majority of them are immigrant Latinas from central America and Mexico, which I think is an important distinction. So I'll say up front that not all Latinas are the same and that they come from different backgrounds and different countries around the world, and that that in and of itself is important. Their immigration patterns and the amount of time that they've been in the U.S., reasons why they have immigrated are all really important and, and influence their perspectives and their choices to to have children, to have families, um, and or not to, and to use contraception to prevent that from happening. So I give that background to say that women are different, they're not all the same, and Latinas are not all the same, but they have very specific perspectives, and those perspectives inform their decision-making. And so what we have found is that when it comes to consultation with providers about contraception, communication is very important to them so they want to be able to have conversations with their providers frank conversations about their contraceptive options and they want their providers to understand their perspectives because those perspectives inform their preferences and they also have plans for their reproductive future and they want providers to understand that and inform them of their options accordingly. So the communication is is important. They want to feel like providers are talking with them and not at them, and that providers are giving them all the information that is relevant to making a decision. They don't want to be judged or typecasted as being Latina, and so there are a number of things that being Latina can can bring upon you uh, in terms of stereotypes, and we can get into those uh, later if you like, but they don't Want to be typecast or judged or stereotyped. Um, instead, they want to have this frank communication, which then builds trust and obviously strengthens a relationship. Um, and that's what they want. That's what's important to them in terms of making a decision.
0: So, I have a follow up question to that. As you talk about the perspectives that these women bring and how that influences the care that they want, can you talk maybe a little bit more, dissect the perspectives specifically? Yeah, so I can talk about
2: the population that I'm currently working with, which again, I just want to be clear that this is not something that we can generalize to all Latinas, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's a very specific population, um, 18 to 24 years old, immigrant Latinas from Mexico and Central America in Baltimore. And on average, the average amount of time in the U.S., Uh, is about five years. So they are relatively recent immigrants. So from this work also emerges, I think, three main things based upon that I think are really well-informed by their immigration experiences, right, and their reasons for for coming to the U.S. The first is this idea of agency, right? So they want to have control and autonomy over their own reproductive health, and they feel more... Then competent to be able to manage those decisions. So it's this idea of agency. So the second thing is uh, this idea of educational and career aspirations. So it's what I referred to in some of my work as aspirational capital. So they have all these aspirations for education and career in this country. And that really informs their perspective on childbearing uh, because they feel like they have goals and things that they wanna achieve before they go on to childbearing. And so that feeds into the third thing, which is this sense of like personal family responsibility as being sort of like the guardians of their family in that they don't want to have necessarily large families that they feel they can't provide good lives for. So it's a a sense of personal family responsibility, and, and that even translates into community responsibility. So they really feel that, being able to child bear when they choose and taking care of the number of children that is best for them is important for promoting health within their families and within their communities. Um, So that's a perspective that I, I don't know if it's necessarily unique, but it is informed by their immigration experiences. And these are perspectives that aren't necessarily that common in the literature when you read about Latinas and reproductive health. Um, and contraceptive decision making. Uh, So I really wanted to get that out there, because these are, um, I think, emerging perspectives that are really important for providers to know.
0: I think this is really interesting, because so my research is all about responsible sexual behavior. And one of the um, studies I did was with college women from Midwestern area, so different from your population, obviously, but they were all in college. And it was interesting that how they define responsible sexual behavior, or what really helped guide their definition of responsible sexual behavior is what their personal goals and their aspirations were. And so because they wanted to graduate, they wanted to get a job, they wanted to do these things, then they aligned their reproductive goals or their reproductive decision making with what their like current life goals were. So it's interesting that that you see this as well. So this is this is cool. Right,
2: right. And I think that's important because in the past, within the literature, and I think within a lot of just general discourse, there are stereotypes about Latinas as being very religious and therefore not wanting to use contraception or wanting really large families because they're Latina or being so poor here in this country that they have no prospects for the future. So, you know, they wouldn't have any career or educational aspirations. And they're also typecast often as not having access or knowledge about contraception. Um, and so this perspective was really different because they they do have knowledge about contraception and they're very clear about their reproductive plans uh, and autonomy. Um, and As providers, we don't really need to convince them that it's important. They sort of got that down on their own. They want to have communication with their providers that supports their decisions. Um, And that doesn't always happen.
1: Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit more about one of those stereotypes about the being poor and not having, you know, career educational goals. And I hear this a lot, not just in Latina population, obviously, but um, in Women who are in poverty, their providers sort of, you know, being very paternalistic and encouraging birth control when they may desire family. Have you looked at that at all in in your research on that experience among Latina immigrants?
2: Yeah, so one of the things that emerged was this perspective that sometimes— As Latinas uh, which they thought was really you know sort of their defining features when they were in the room with a provider was that they were you know clearly they were Latina there is a perspective where they felt that providers were encouraging them to use contraception and specifically they were encouraging certain methods Um, so a couple women said you know I came in and I already had an idea of what method I wanted to use and the provider kept hinting, or maybe not so subtly hinting at different methods um, that were longer acting methods, right? Such as the IUD or the implant um, that we know work for longer, and then once they're in, they can only be removed by another provider. And so in several instances, they really felt like they were being um, coerced in some ways to use certain methods that they had no interest in using. And they often thought it was everything to do with their uh, ethnicity. And so we, as providers, we work to provide access and contraception options for all women. I think I'd like to think that most of us do that. But there are times, and and the literature can, can support this, where women feel that they are being coerced to use specific methods that they don't want to use and it's specifically latinas feel that way and african american women have also felt that way so that's a problem and you know, as the work my work shows it's, it's actually really unnecessary right because women for the most part know exactly what they want and they don't need to be convinced or coerced and particularly Because we know that there is a long history in the U.S. of forced sterilization of women of color, this is particularly troublesome. And I think more and more reproductive health in the U.S. is moving toward understanding this perspective of of autonomy and reproductive justice, particularly for poor women of color.
0: So in consideration of the the three things you talked about, agency, the personal responsibility, and and the aspirations or the aspiration capital that you talked about, how do you then keep those concepts in mind when you are communicating with one of your patients? Yeah, I
2: mean, so this is a hot topic now, right? This idea of patient-centered care or shared decision making. And, you know, when you think about it, it's it's kind of like well duh right it's not that sounds about right let's focus on the patient and and let's do some decision making that involves both the provider and the patient with the patient running the show but that's as the literature has shown and as my research has also shown that's not exactly what's happening particularly with poor women of color which is really really unjust and so What I do with all of my patients, right, regardless, is let them drive the ship and focus on them. And I start by asking them their preferences, right, and what what they want in, in contraception, or if they even don't want contraception, right? So if someone doesn't want contraception, then we move on from that because they have every right to make that decision. But when I do counseling, I really focus on their preferences uh, and answering their questions and supporting their choices. You know, as long as their choices are healthy choices, i.e. as long as there's a contraceptive method, that is not going to cause more harm than good, right? But that's not the case for most methods. All methods are very safe, right? Just sort of depends on what other health conditions may exist. But most women are pretty healthy. So I really just focus on supporting their decisions and answering all their questions and letting them know that they can communicate with me at any time if there's a question that they have. And I also make it very, very clear that if at any time they don't like this method and want to either switch methods or if they have an IUD or an implant and they want those out, they can call me at any time and have them removed. And I think that that's really all there is to it. It sounds you know, pretty easy, but it's just not what we have been doing. Um, and that idea of asking her her preferences and what fits best for her and what's acceptable for her and what's not acceptable for her and answering her questions goes a really, really long way um, and promotes trust um, and, and a positive relationship with a provider.
0: Well, I guess the one question I have is, you know, we talk about trust being, you know, a really big piece of this. How do you personally or what has your research found that facilitates trust the most?
2: Yeah, communication. When patients think that they were heard, number one, and that providers are then giving them the relevant information for whatever the topic is, that's communication, right? That's in their in their view, and I think in the view of most people, communication and communication is what builds trust. Some patients think that their doctors are hearing them and that they understand everything that their doctors are doing or saying, and that their doctors give them information, they now trust the doctor. And and you know, those are they're kind of inextricably linked. But one follows the other. So I'm gonna trust you if we have good communication.
0: And is there anything in particular, I mean, I know this sounds like really basic. But as far as when it comes to like patients feeling like they're listened to, what what can a provider do to, you know, almost maybe like non-verbally or even verbally communicate that yeah. they are listening to them?
2: Yeah. You know, in this very busy age of, you know, of seeing a ton of patients and also having all this technology that we kind of have to work through with electronic medical records, it can be hard. But like the basic things are still important. So eye contact is key, right? Sitting down while you're talking to a patient, not standing over the patient or standing up or typing on a computer. Those things are really important. Acknowledging what they're saying, right? And asking them about them and their preferences. So I think that those things are really important in having them think that you hear them, and responding to their questions in a way that directly answers the question to the best of your ability. Um, I think often patients think that providers sort of dismiss them or don't answer their questions or feel like their providers don't think that their concerns are that important. And so acknowledging those things are are important. I'll give you an example. So contraception depends on the contraception and depends on the person but people can have side effects from them and when a person comes in and says hey i am experiencing this side effect and i think it's related to my contraceptive method you know acknowledging that and hearing that and talking about that with the patient is really important instead of sort of dismissing it and saying oh it's probably not related or you know you can probably manage that Or that's not something that, you know, we've ever heard as a side effect. So it's not that. Um, You know, that really makes women think or patients think that providers are not listening to them and not hearing them and sort of dismissing them. Um, So I see this all the time. And I often see it with young women of color who have a long-acting method and who come in and say, hey, this implant is causing X, Y, Z. And providers say, no, it's probably not, you know. Let's let's move on from that. You should still keep it. You know, it's a really great method. It's highly effective. And that's not the priority of all women is, you know, whether or not it's effective or not. Some women don't really have a problem with side effects. They need to be heard and they need to be addressed. And methods need to be removed if, if, if women are not happy with them. So I think that that's just an example of how they don't feel like they're being heard or listened to or their opinions are not being valued.
0: And in your counseling, do you loop in or explicitly discuss what their personal goals are, what their aspirations are? Not necessarily, because I don't think
2: everyone is the same. And so I sort of let women kind of drive that, right? And sometimes a patient will say it right off the bat and just say, listen, I'm in school right now, and I really have to finish this particular degree, and I can't be pregnant for the next three years. Okay. And that, you know, that gives me like a place to start from, but that's not always the case, right? Sometimes women come in with different priorities that drive their decisions to use contraception. And I, and I let that kind of guide the conversation. I I try very hard not to make assumptions about what people's plans are. And for some women, the idea of having a reproductive health plan doesn't necessarily resonate. It's not really the way Um, that they see their lives. And so it really just depends on the woman and and what she wants to share and how she presents her priorities and preferences.
1: Okay, so you talked about how um, trust is so important in order to get that trust, establishing good communication with your patients. What do you see as sort of the outcome of that, trusting relationship as far as
2: patient health outcomes? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a great question. So we, I mean, we know because the literature supports us, you know, already that good communication and trust between patient and their provider is associated with overall better health in general, but it's also improves patient satisfaction, which is a very important thing as well, and it's it's kind of the direction that we're going in when we talk about patient-centered care. So, increased satisfaction and better overall health in general, but this idea of women feeling like they have autonomy and us allowing them to have their autonomy because it, it's theirs uh, instead of interfering with it, really, I think, promotes more just and equitable care. And the long-term outcomes of that are happier, healthier families and communities, particularly for those women who historically were denied that.
1: Okay, so then going back then to the reproductive health plan, so my research is in how providers talk to women about their reproductive life plans, because it's something that is quote-unquote, mandated by the Office of Public Affairs for Title X club. Sure. So I wanted to learn how providers are actually doing this. Yeah. and A lot of providers spoke about, and you hit on this as well, that some people really articulate that plan and these are my goals and I don't want to have children until I reach such and such goal. While other women really don't have that and don't see how their reproduction aligns with maybe some of their aspirations. So could you talk a little bit in your specific population communicating with women without those goals about contraception or family planning?
2: Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. I am quite aware of this reproductive life plan stipulation, Um, and I think more and more as providers, we are having this conversation about how the idea of a reproductive health plan may not resonate for everyone, and it may be a little bit paternalistic too, right? So we as providers come up with this concept of a reproductive life plan, because maybe that's what we had in our lives, but that doesn't necessarily translate for everyone, particularly low-income women who live in underserved neighborhoods or who have sort of different economic circumstances than we do. And so I think more and more we're trying to get away from this idea of what's your reproductive health plan. So, because it because sometimes I think women are just like, you know, what are you talking about? That's not really how my life works. Um, and it's also a fluid thing, right? So your plans for having a baby or not can often change and they can change in a short period of time. Um, So that's another reason why reproductive health plans don't necessarily fit for all women. So, again, I really focus on letting the woman explain to me what her sort of life perspective is at that moment in time and what her preferences are. And there are times when I say to her, at this point in time, when do you think you want to have children? And that usually centers around questions of, well, how long does this contraceptive method last Is it long-acting or short-acting? And so then I ask those questions to to kind of gauge what they're looking for, and I can better assess, you know, what the options might be. But again, it's really about preferences and kind of what they come to the table with and, and what's important to them at that moment in time. And again, women are usually very clear about that in the very beginning. This is what they want. This is what they're looking for. This is what they absolutely don't want. And I think leaving that conversation open also to say, hey, if this doesn't work for you or you don't like this or your plans change or your circumstances change, then feel free to call me or come back at any time. If in this moment you don't want to use contraception for whatever reason, I support that too. If you ever change your mind or want to talk about other options, please come in at any time. So I think that This is not a different answer from the others that I've given, but really focusing on what's important to them, what are their preferences, is kind of how I handle the reproductive life plan. For me, it's no different than really any other aspect of of counseling women in that the focus is on them and their preferences.
0: So, uh, Deanna, we kind of want to circle back to some of the research you do because we think it's just really unique. And we did read a few of your articles, and one of your articles talked about the role of age. And so I was just curious, how does age play a role? Or could you talk to our listeners about how age plays a role in how women desire to be communicated with? Yeah, I mean, I,
2: I, what, what our research found was that most women, including adolescents, want to have front conversations with their providers that take into account their preferences. I think you know that, that actually doesn't really vary by age, but in our population, women who are under the age of eighteen, who are still considered minors, right, in the eyes of the law, really have concerns about confidentiality, whether it's confidentiality from their parents or you know even from their friends and things like that. So. For those women, we found that confidentiality with the healthcare providers and and feeling secure that, that this conversation would be kept in the exam room was really important for them. And that notion of confidentiality really translated to trust. So they felt that when their providers assured them that this was a confidential conversation and kept the conversation that way, that that fostered trust for them. So that was important for them. And I think depending on the population, but often with young immigrant Latinas who don't have a lot of experience with the healthcare system, it's not always clear that issues of reproductive health, it depends on the state, but in, in the state of Maryland where I am, that issues of reproductive health are confidential. And so, so I think that that's an important point and is really important for providers who take care of, of young populations um, that assuring confidentiality is important to, to build trust.
0: Um, The other question I had related to your population was, and we actually did a podcast on monolingual Spanish speaking women, I think it was episode three or four, but we talk about the role of like, if you speak or don't speak Spanish with your patients. Mm -hmm. And in one of your studies, you found that providers who don't speak Spanish that it was not necessarily a barrier to care. Can you talk more about this and how a provider who doesn't speak Spanish can also be an effective communicator to immigrant Latina women? Sure. Um, So don't
2: get me wrong. I think that there are many Latina patients and many patients who speak a different native language than English are very happy to have providers that speak their native language, right? And I think that that is definitely a positive. But not speaking the native language or not speaking Spanish with this population was not noted as a barrier to care or something that they necessarily thought would impede their decision-making. Um, and so even if there was an interpreter, right, sort of associated with the visit, that was not an issue. They still thought that the provider could really focus on their preferences and have communication that focuses on understanding the woman and her background um, and supporting her in her decision-making, even if it's through an interpreter. So the women that I worked with just really wanted to be clear that they didn't think that there was necessarily a problem with a provider who didn't speak Spanish, because a lot of them had had positive experiences with providers who didn't speak Spanish, but who still focused on their preferences and tried to understand kind of where they were coming from, and also try to listen to what they were saying, even if it was through an interpreter.
0: So would you say then that trust, you know, there wasn't really a big impact on, like, the ability to build trust based on if the provider spoke the native language?
2: I I would say that the research reflects that, yes, that the particular population that we focused on Definitely had that perspective that while, of course, speaking their native language with a provider and having their provider understand them and speak back to them was ideal, it wasn't an absolute requirement, right, for getting good contraceptive counseling and care.
0: Great. It was just interesting to have that, have your perspective, kind of the research side of it, you know, to compare with our previous episode with like the practical side of it too.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's always great to speak someone's language, right? And I think that that in and of itself often fosters trust and communication, obviously. But providers who don't speak Spanish can take care of immigrant Latinas um, in a way that's patient-centered as well.
1: So, Diana, just with your work specifically with Latina immigrants from Central America and the current policies that's going on, in our country, how do you see this impacting your patients, Mm -hmm. um, like sort of on this day-to-day practice level?
2: Yeah, it's, it is something that, you know, I thought about from actually the moment that we had an administration change and have thought about it with the policies that have been happening more and more in different cities and obviously at certain borders. So, you know, I would say that the way that My immigrant Latina patients are affected, is no different from how other immigrant Latino patients are being affected. And so, what we have noticed is that people are afraid, and they are particularly afraid to seek healthcare access, whatever it might be, and contraception is included for fear of repercussions related to their immigration. And so, When people are afraid to seek care, they just don't. And so we see fewer and fewer of them and fewer of them at this point want to engage, right? Because there's there's a lot of substantiated fear about what the repercussions of that might be for them and their families. And that's kind of the simple answer to where we are right now. And frankly, we're stuck here for, I don't know how long, but that's the situation.
1: And just to sort of follow up on that, if you do any advocacy work, do you have any advice or suggestions for other providers who may want to advocate for their immigrant patients?
2: So I think it depends on where you work, and it depends on what you're able to do in your office settings. So there are settings where you can see a variety of patients, regardless of insurance status or immigration status, and there's sliding scale fees attached with that, and there are there's a limited amount of information that they have to provide, and so in that case, you can provide reassurance to your patients that they are safe there. But that's not true for every place, right? And I don't think in this current political climate, we can assure that all of our immigrant patients are safe from the repercussions of some policies that that are being put into place. And so the advocacy really falls in keeping your patients safe to the best of your ability um, and being frank with patients for whom it might not be safe, and then voting, (laughs) That's a, that's a big thing. Um, and being active in your state legislature when it comes to these policies and being the voice of health care and well-being for these
1: communities. Yeah, Thank you. I just wanted to sort of bring that up because I think that's a glaring issue right now.
2: Yeah, I really hate to be so grim about it, but I also want to be quite frank about what our patients are facing I know, you know, we're never never stuck with sort of one administration. But policies are and have been put into place as a direct result of the current administration that have directly harmed immigrant families to a lasting degree. So even after, you know, maybe we don't have this administration anymore or new administrations come in, the policies that have been put into place or that were in place for just a short period of time and then reverse, are going to have lasting impacts on families and children. And so recognizing that that's a thing I think is really important and addressing it to the best of our ability is important for the safety and health of our patients and their communities.
0: I think the one question I, you know, kind of moving forward and sort of circling back to even sort of our beginning conversation is, you know, we talk about the perspective that immigrant women have and how they view uh, birth control and their decision making. And I'm just curious, I know that your patient base is largely uh, immigrant Latino women. Do you notice, and again, if you have this comparison to even make, do you notice a difference between those core concepts you talked about and other non-immigrant women and how you provide or how they view contraceptive decision-making.
2: Yeah, I do think that their experiences as immigrants, particularly so immigrants that are, you know, within border distance, right? So there, there are differences in immigration patterns and, a lot of the women who come here from Central and South America or Mexico, particularly Central America and Mexico, have crossed a border on foot or, you know, by ground. So not they haven't flown here in a plane. There were reasons why it was more beneficial for them to try to come to this country. And they have different perspectives about what they see for themselves in the future. They have a different understanding of America. They have some or no understanding of our healthcare, and also sort of the, the societal challenges that exist for us. And I think that those very much inform their plans and their decisions around childbearing, which can be different for US born Latinas who have been here all of their lives and find themselves in different economic circumstances or have different access to healthcare. And that's not to say that they have better access to healthcare, but it may be different and it may be a different understanding. And so what their future holds or what their plans are or how they view their lives can be very different. And so understanding that I think is important and, and trying to get at that when a patient comes in to talk to you about contraception, I think is, is also key. And it really incorporates that idea of communication and patient-centeredness and focusing clearly on what the person wants and supporting her in her choices. And I think that that very much incorporates that framework I was talking about of autonomy and justice. And for particularly underserved women of color, whether they're U.S. born or not, obviously Latinas are my population of interest. but. Supporting the ability for them to have control over their own childbearing and make decisions for themselves and for their families, that's really critical to getting at just and equitable care um, and achieving this idea of reproductive justice that, you know, we're all talking about now. But this justice is really a central tenet of good health care, and, and I think it's, it's a person's right, and this, this has to be honored if we're going to achieve Equitable care.
0: So, does or how does your communication change or conversations vary depending on if women are more like recent immigrant women versus, you know, native Latina women, if that makes sense? So, it
2: only varies in how the patient drives the conversation, right? It doesn't really vary in what I specifically bring up, right? I still let her drive the conversation and explain to me what's important for her and what her preferences are. And then she decides kind of what she wants to share with me and what's important and what her um, specific needs are when it comes to contraception or childbearing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I am acutely aware that immigration experiences affect decision making and that, um, you know where you're born or where you live or what your economic um, circumstances are are also important factors to understand so i listen for them right and i hear them but i don't change my approach to counseling and conversations it's still something that as much as they want to the patient drives
0: yes And I think that's definitely a theme that we've seen. We kind of keep asking this of of our guests, like, you know, do you do things differently based on the patients you serve? And and I think everyone has said no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, everyone, everyone gets approached this way. And, you know, maybe the conversation or things are tailored a little differently, but it's always no. They all, everyone, we ask all these questions to everyone, so...
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if we really want to do patient-centered care, then we have to honor that, right, that it's centered on the patient.
1: Yeah, I think that's really, you know, this shift in provider communication. And Nicole's a little bit younger than me, but, you know, in nursing school, we learned, like, Chinese people believe this and want this (laughs) in their healthcare, And African-American people want this and believe this. And that was like called cultural competence like if you sort of memorize these things and treated all patients right, the same right in reality it's almost like you have to treat all patients the same yes. um <laughs> That's differences.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So cultural competency, I mean, we don't have to get into that, but that, you know, that is one of those terms that irks me.
1: Right. Um,
2: (laughs) Like, you know, the idea of being competent in all culture or a specific culture is sort of absurd. It's more like, you know, when you're talking about health care and taking care of people, it's about being competent in patients and communication and, and really focusing on that patient and building trust. That's what, you know, we hope that one can get competent in because it encompasses sort of their background, their perspectives and their culture and understanding that to the best of your ability and, and to the degree that the patient wants that to be the thing. So the competence has to be really in patient centeredness and communication and
1: trust building. Yeah, and I think I just want to bring that up in that we have some some of these episodes where we kind of lump a specific population together and it's not because oh, everybody from this population is the same and this is how you manage that population. That's not what we're really getting at. It's just bringing awareness to some concerns that people from the population have or just really what does that look like? What are those patients experiencing that might be different than other people? Really, it comes down to your specific patient.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I think that's true. That's true. And, you know, in in my work, I'm not trying to say specifically, okay, Latinas are different from all other women, and we need to do things in this specific way. But the point is really to say communication and trust is still very important to them. And putting them in a box or typecasting them or judging them or considering old stereotypes or even new stereotypes is not helpful and doesn't promote health, or happiness, or community well-being. And so in the past, because I specifically feel as a Latina and as a healthcare provider that Latinas are often typecast and stereotyped, I really wanted to do this work and get this work out to show that that's not the case. And that many of the same things that any woman, right, the mainstream woman, whoever that is, or any other woman would want, is no different for this particular population. Of Latinas and honoring that is important.
0: So we've talked about or you've kind of brought up being typecasted or stereotyped a few times now and I'm just curious what would you say are the most common or prevalent stereotypes out there that maybe providers or societies hold that are damaging to women?
2: Yeah um, and I'm going to you know, I'm going to say that I don't have hard evidence or stats, but I will tell you sort of anecdotally what I know mm-hmm. and what I believe is the most damaging. So a very common one is that they are religious. Most Latinas, and this is a fact, really, they come from Catholic backgrounds, and so therefore they don't want contraception. That's one. Latinas um, have very dominant male partners. There's a lot of machismo involved, and so... The male makes the decision many times, and and we have to focus on that. That's the second one, right? A third one is, well, Latinas want really big families. You know, they just want to have lots of kids, so they don't really want contraception. So those are damaging, right? And then the others are, well, some of these women come from poor backgrounds in neighborhoods with unequal access to public education, which is true. But because of that, their prospects in the future are not that good. So maybe there's nothing else for them to do but have kids. So that's another one. So, you know, why do they need contraception? And then there are those stereotypes or right, or sort of like the opposite ex- extreme that has decided that we really have to focus on contraception and not letting these women have children early on or have too many of them because, you know, that's not good for them. They shouldn't be pregnant that early or they shouldn't have that many children or they need to wait a specific period of time before they have their next one. So we are going to really, really promote slash sort of coerce specific long-acting methods. So those are those are all stereotypes and experiences that I've heard from my patients that certainly damage their ability to access health care and contraceptive care and to have autonomy and justice when it comes to their reproductive care.
0: So another concept that you have brought up and then we I probably would say almost every episode somehow we get on the topic of empowerment and I think this aligns with a lot of the stereotypes that you discussed is that maybe Latino women again, as a stereotype, maybe aren't an overly empowered population. And so I'm just curious from your standpoint, you know, what is your view on empowerment within this population? Yeah, I guess just what's your view with empowerment? So, you know, I've thought about this
2: previously, and I think about this concept of empowerment. And I don't know, there's something sort of about it that doesn't sit well with me just thinking about the history, right? Um, Particularly when we're talking about contraception. And when it when we think about the historical injustices and the forced sterilization uh, of Latinas and African American women and other poor women in this country and so i have to really stop and think about what empowerment means and you know sort of who that's referring to is it referring to this like you know paternalistic mainstream society giving them power because you know we can or do they already have the capacity and an agency for power, right? So do they already know what they want and have that agency? And I think that the answer is yes. I think that that women can make their own decisions and they don't they don't need anyone else, right? They 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 have the capacity to do that and they know what's right for them. So I don't think it's necessarily about sort of this mainstream paternalistic society giving them power and right, sort of this idea of empowering, but it's more about not interfering with their self power, right? What they know and have and are perfectly capable of, um, right? So it's not deprivileging them, right? And taking that away or taking away their power or interfering with it, but just letting them have that autonomy and that justice that they're entitled to um and that they're perfectly capable of exercising on their own.
0: Yes, yeah, so so like yeah, and and it's interesting I would say that probably most of the conversations we have about empowerment is a, a lot of our guessing, you know, it's not something I give my patients. You know, this is something yeah. within them that maybe, you know, we can help foster or, you know, the I think in our last interview we talked about uh, well that that's not aired yet. She talks about you know, goal setting and success to show them that they have the power within them, that empowerment is within, again, not something that someone from the outside gives them. And I think that's what you're saying too. And, and so I, yeah, I guess kind of my follow up is like, do you feel like you're, that the women, you know, the immigrant women recognize this power within them and feel that they can exercise this, or how does that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think that they, are very clear on what they want and what their goals are, and that they, if not interfered with, are perfectly capable of, of doing it and, are, and will exercise that power as long as we as a society don't strip them of that or take away their ability to do it with the structural inequities that we put into place um so it's you know it, there's there's a lot of privilege happening right and with privilege unfortunately particularly in this country if, if someone has privilege that means that someone else therefore cannot and if someone has the power that that means that it, it it must be taken away from someone else um or denied to someone else and so that's sort of the struggle right i think it's not necessarily about saying hey By the way, you do have this power. It's about not limiting it um, or interfering.
1: So, Deanna, we always like to end our interview with asking our guests about communication tips for our listeners. And you've definitely listed many along the way. But if you could just summarize those tips and include any final ones that you might have.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I probably won't have anything extra, but I will. Uh, I'll summarize. And, and again, the focus is on on the patient and being patient-centered. And that means focusing on preferences, needs, desires, and questions that the patient has. And it also means that we as providers have to be there for the patient to consult with the patient and to support her decision regardless of what we think the best decision is um, and recognizing that it's not our decision and that it's really equitable and just care for her to make her own decision. And that avoids prejudging and also what I call post-judging. Right. And if we do that and we really focus on that, that I think we're getting a little bit closer to providing just just and equitable care and achieving this reproductive justice that we really want that's critical for health and the health of the woman, her family, and communities.
0: I do have one follow-up question. Can you talk a little bit more about your concept of post-judging? Let's say she
2: decides on a specific method and then she leaves. And in your brain, you're like, oh, my God, she should have definitely chosen another one. She's going to get pregnant on that right away. I know that that's not the choice for her because she can't remember to take the pill every day or whatever, right? You have sort of decided is the issue, right? And so keeping that that judgment looming in your mind, right, so that the next time you see her or a colleague of yours sees her, you still have that judgment, right? So the next time you see her and she wants to use the pill again or she wants to use a different method that you you know, think is not the best method for her, you bring that judgment into the exam room and that affects communication and overall patient care. And so avoiding that and avoiding saying to yourself, I know what is going to happen to her. She's going to be right back here and she's going to be pregnant or she's going to hate that and she's going to come right back here. That doesn't serve anyone, particularly not the patient, and it just fuels your judgment as a provider. And so that's what I mean by post-judgment.
0: So post-judging is not great, but your description of that, yeah, I definitely can see how that happens. So then I guess my next follow-up question is then how do you not do that or how do you manage that? Yeah,
2: and and I'm going to be honest with you. I think we all do it, right? So you all keep that and you harbor it. But one way that you can keep it from translating to the relationship that you have with your patient is – recognizing it right so the next time she comes in you know she's coming in for another visit and it's because you know either she's pregnant or because this method didn't work for her right so acknowledging that a month ago you didn't think that was a good idea or you had some sort of judgment about how that was going to work acknowledging that and then leaving it at the door and focusing on that visit and what at that moment is the best decision for her and what she wants And so I think that that's a way to do it. Right. So not judging is hard and probably a a ridiculous thing to say and not something that we're capable of. But recognizing that you do it and casting it aside to the best of your ability, leaving it out of your relationship is, I think, is how you can best address it.
0: No, that's great. And this also, you know, it's another theme from a lot of our episodes is the importance of leaving it at the door and then when you enter the door, that that's a new visit, a new day, a new time, a new patient, and you just let all the other stuff leave it outside. So, again, another theme that kind of keeps popping up in our in our podcast. So yeah, so it's great.
1: I will say that I haven't really heard anyone talk about that concept. No, yet, so, so that's and it totally happens. <laughs> I mean,
0: yes, I mean absolutely. I I kind of made it up. So yeah. <laughs> no. You're owning it now. Go ahead and own post-judging. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) Post-judging. I'm glad that we kind of went on that little. Well, great. Deanna, we just really appreciate the time that you've taken and the commitment that you have to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? I just want to say thanks for
2: caring about this work. I don't always come across people who have a genuine interest and really care about this and want to hear about it. So I appreciate you guys for for even considering my work and for, you know, listening to what I have to say about it. And I hope that other people feel the same way.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, we love this. When we heard about your research, we're like, well gosh, that's our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed like a very natural fit for us that that we would talk. And so this was a great conversation. And and I think that our listeners do probably also feel very similar to you and to us. And so I think that this will fall upon welcoming yours. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks again. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman Centered Health podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.